Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Adverse Childhood Experiences, How Social Factors Affect Young People's Health and What Can Be Done. This program was recorded Thursday, September 19th, 2019 in Hamilton, New Jersey. Policymakers, philanthropists, and private stakeholders are increasingly recognizing how social factors like poverty, inadequate education, and violence impact an individual's health and wellness over time, far beyond what medical care alone can control. Researchers have found that the toll can be particularly profound on children since adverse childhood experiences such as sexual abuse or having incarcerated parents leaves youngsters many times more vulnerable to problems with their health, difficulty in school, and encounters with the criminal justice system. In this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, we're exploring the topic of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, in a roundtable format with a panel of experts representing the public sector, healthcare providers, and funders seeking better outcomes, among others. The conversation will explore the physiological impact of these painful events on young people, the toxic stress that develops in response, and how the stress erodes their wellness and ability to succeed as they age. The program will consider the high number of children affected by ACEs in New Jersey, at least 4 in 10 studies show, and the connection to other social determinants of health, with a focus on what can be done to reduce the burdens of these traumas on young residents. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce the program. Welcome everyone. My name is John Mooney, uh, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and I want to thank you very much for being here. Um, This is certainly a a special event for us. Uh, In in one way, it was filled up quicker than any I think we've ever done, uh, showing just how important an issue it is. Um, but also, I think, uh, you know, how this issue has become so critical, not just in the area of healthcare, um, but also education and social services, and, and just really entered into the conversation around these issues that uh, I've covered education for a long time, and, and it's really only somewhat recently, at least, to be part of the statewide and national discussion. So we're really thrilled to, to be hosting her an event around it. Um, For those who don't know us well, NJ Spotlight, we're close to celebrating our 10th birthday um, uh, as a news and information site uh, covering uh, public policy and public affairs in New Jersey. Uh, As some of you may know, we recently got married um, and joined forces with NJTV and WNET Public TV, um, allowing us to really um, and and we're certain of this, I I wouldn't just say we hope, but we know uh, to expand and improve on the coverage for this state uh, on issues of public uh, affairs and importance. And and we're really very excited about that. And I'll talk a little bit more um, as we go on. Uh, But what has remained constant about NJ Spotlight is our um, commitment to doing these live events. Uh, We like to call them live journalism. Uh, which bring people together to discuss issues uh, of importance. We've done close to 100 of these over our 10 years um, on everything from, uh, you know, solar energy to charter schools to, um, in fact, we're doing one tomorrow. I'm not sure there's a big overlap with this crowd, but maybe we're doing one on energy storage up in Newark um, at Robert Treat Center at, at 8.20. You can get up early again and come join us up there. Um, but it also will be live streamed like this one. Uh, but it's just very important. And I, I say this uh, broken record on this, but 
in this day and age when we all uh, live online and, and in our, uh, our little silos, I think it's critically important we get together once in a while and see each other and talk and, and exchange ideas. And um, I think that gets a little lost in the discourse and, and uh, hopefully NJ Spotlight helps fill some of that uh, gap for us. Um, so thank you all for being part of this one um, and uh, helping us move forward on, on this issue. One thing I do want to say about this is, after saying all that about live, uh, this event will, will live on uh, online in several forms. Uh, we will be creating a page on our site, which will include the live stream archived, as well as an article about it and any resources that are shared uh, as part of this, of this discussion. Um, so that, and, actually, and if I'm right, Steve, that will get sent to all of you will get sent uh, information all, all of that afterwards. Is that, yeah, anyone who registered uh, and we have your email or gave us your email, that will be sent to you. So that's something you can uh, share with other folks as well and, and I think that's important. Um, also, speaking of online, uh, what's an event without a hashtag, of course. Uh, so, and ours is A-C-E uh, in N-J, that's A-C-E-I-N-N-J. Um, there is also Wi-Fi here. Uh, if it doesn't automatically happen, it's internet promo, and then the code is 2019-HILTON-130. So we covered that. Um, these discussions, and, and we'll talk a little bit more when we get closer to it, but uh, we do like some interaction with the audience, and so if you have comments or questions that you would like integrated into the conversation, we have uh, index cards on your, on your tables. Uh, fill that out and wave to one of us who will be walking around the outskirts and we'll try to get that up to the moderator. Can't promise everything gets included uh, by any means, but hopefully, um, it, certainly the sentiment will be, uh, will be reflected in the conversations. Uh, there's also on your table surveys, uh, which we ask you to fill out, really important for us to uh, continue to improve and, and expand on these programs, so your feedback is really important to that. Um, and last but not least, I want to uh, give credit to our sponsors. Um, in this case, uh, NJ Funders, ACES Collaborative, uh, the Burke Foundation, Nicholson Foundation, Terrell Fund, and Horizon. Um, and I'd like to invite uh, Steve uh, Shallot, our business director, to say a little bit more about them. But what I want to say is these events don't happen without our sponsors. Um, and certainly they don't happen uh, for free uh, to each of you. Uh, and that's very important to us to have these be free events and, and allow folks to come without cost. I, we all know we go to a lot of conferences that do cost. Ours don't. Uh, and that can't happen without sponsors. So I want to give them uh, a lot of credit and I'm going to ask Steve Shallot to come up and say a few words on their behalf. Steve. Thank you, John. Um, I'm Steve Shallot. I'm the business developer development director with NJ Spotlight and have a, a role in uh, producing these shows, which is my distinct pleasure, especially since the, the public policy issues and topics that are important in the state are, um, it's, it's vital that they're covered and it's our, our you know, our duty really um, to do these things and we're, we're pleased that you could join us and uh, um, help with this discussion. John mentions our sponsors. It is imperative that we have support to do this and uh, we're extremely grateful to uh, today's sponsors, and I'd like to say a few words on their behalf. Uh, firstly, New Jersey Funders ACES Collaborative, which is uh, the three foundations John mentioned, the Burke Foundation, the Nicholson Foundation, 
and the Terrell Fund. They share deep roots in New Jersey and have a commitment to building a brighter future for children. In partnership with the Department of Children and Families, the three foundations formed the New Jersey Funders ACES Collaborative in 2018 and launched a new coordinated effort to support programs that benefit vulnerable children and families. The collaborative will commit significant financial resources and the technical assistance over the coming years to advance efforts that reduce early life stress and promote positive life trajectories for all children in New Jersey. Also sponsoring um, is, the, is Horizon Blue Cross and Blue Shield of New Jersey, um, which is the state's oldest and largest health insurer. It's a tax-paying, not-for-profit health services corporation, providing a wide array of medical, dental, vision, and prescription insurance products and services. They're headquartered in Newark, with offices in Wall Township, Mount Laurel, and Pennington. Uh, Horizon Blue Cross and Blue Shield of New Jersey is an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, serving approximately 3.7 million members. Horizon is leading the transformation of healthcare in New Jersey by working with doctors and hospitals to deliver innovative patient-centered programs that reward the quality, not quantity, of care that patients receive. The company is also collaborating with health and local community partners in an integrated model program in Newark to help at-risk patients overcome social barriers to healthcare. So um, thank you again to the New Jersey Funders ACES Collaborative and Horizon Blue Cross and Blue Shield of New Jersey for supporting this event. And uh, I'd like to turn it back over to John. Thank you. So let's get on with the show. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we are now in, in partnership with NJTV News. And, and one of the great benefits of that is not only are they live streaming this event and, and um, keeping it alive for folks to see over and over and over, if you wish, um, but they are also helping provide um, some video um, that will help bring some context to this conversation. Uh, as many of you may have seen, um, it was a five-part series, uh, ended up being an award-winning series uh, by NJTV's Michael Hill called Traumas, Tragedy, and Treatment. Um, which aired, um, I guess it was earlier this year, maybe even last year. Um, and we asked them, and, and uh, they more than obliged to uh, provide us some selections from that. Don't worry, we're not going to make you watch a five-part series. Um, but we, we did uh, pull some selections from it that I think will help uh, frame and, and um, start off the discussion. So uh, are we ready to? So why don't we get that going? landmark CDC Kaiser Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey of more than 17,000 Californians. The survey found the more adverse experiences, such as abuse, violence, household dysfunction by 18 years of age, the greater the risk of developmental issues, chronic disease, and even early death. The respondents, mostly white, middle class, and college educated. So what that blew the lid off of was that this is their problem. This is an other issue. It was made very clear that ACEs impact all aspects of the economic strata, all races, all education levels, and that's both liberating and overwhelming. 
Carrie Lagoso Miserell leads the Greater Newark Healthcare Coalition, one of six national grant recipients of the Hamilton-based Center for Healthcare Strategies. The coalition devises and coordinates trauma-informed care, such as this Building a Culture of Health in Newark event, convening national researchers and nonprofits to share best practices. We all are impacted to one degree or another mm. by ACEs, so it's personal for all of us to different degrees. Right. However, turned a different way, it also levels the playing field and makes this really more of a human issue that bonds us if approached correctly and will help us help each other. In September, the first national ACEs study of more than 214,000 respondents found nearly 62% had one adverse experience, nearly a quarter had three or more. Significantly higher ACE exposures were reported by participants identified as black, Hispanic, multiracial, less than a high school education, income of less than 15,000, unemployed, gay, lesbian, bisexual, compared to those white, straight, employed, and with more education and higher income. The most prevalent ACE exposures, parental separation or divorce, and emotional and substance abuse. A separate upcoming report for these three funders shows four in 10 children in New Jersey have had one adverse childhood experience. The risk for multiple ACEs is higher for children from communities with high violence, low incomes, and in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems. The most common ACEs in New Jersey, living in economic hardship, family dysfunction, and with substance use disorder. Thank you very much. So I think we're going to get started straight to our um, panel. And I'd like to invite Lilo up uh, to join us. And the panelists, um, I think you know who you are. Hopefully you know who you are. <laughs> Could you please join us? It'll take a couple minutes. And Lilo Stainton has uh, been our health uh, care reporter for uh, the last five years. Before that was uh, with Asbury Park Press and, and other media in New Jersey and, and uh, has been a, a real stalwart for NJ Spotlight and, and uh, also proven to be quite an adept um, moderator. So um, she's working, working her, her room right now, but uh, we'll get it going. Are you mic'd or? Do you want this one? Bear with us. Finely tuned machine after 100 of these, you can tell. One, two. Check. Great. Good morning. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, we're going to get a second mic so that we don't have to pass it back and forth the entire time. There we go, okay. I'm gonna try to take my seat without squashing my phone. Good morning. Great, um, I used to work for a union organizer, so it's good to hear, yep, good morning. Uh, thank you, um, we're all here awake. Um, so, uh, as you saw in the video, um, my name's Lilo Stainton, healthcare reporter for New Jersey Spotlight. And um, 
So, uh, as you saw in the video, uh, there was this collaborative that did this wonderful report, and we have some representation from them, from their group up here. Um, and among the things that they found were four in 10 New Jersey children experienced one or more ACEs. Um, under age five, we're talking about one in three. Um, Short-term effects are multiple. We're going to talk about all this, but we're just, you know, multiple alcoholism, criminal justice problems, school struggles, high school, uh, uh, sorry, higher rates of asthma, lung disease, obesity, cancer, premature death. Um, so uh, the impacts are serious. Um, we have some great panelists to help us break this down from my left to right. Dr. Kemi, El Kemi Ali, Kemi? Kemi Ali, uh, who's the CEO of the Henry J. Austin uh, at the FQHC in Trenton. Um, Dr. Arturo Brito uh, from the Nicholson Foundation, ex executive director, used to be the epidemiologist with this pediatrician, but I, I worked for the state too. Yeah, okay, checking my brain. Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, Commissioner Christine ba Beyer, uh, the exec. Uh, the Commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Children and Families, Dr. Denise Rogers, uh, Vice Chancellor for Interprofessional Programs, Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, <sighs> Chair at the Rutgers uh, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and leader of the Believe in a Healthy Newark Coalition, among other titles, I'm sure. Um, Ms. Tracy Paris Benjamin Smith, who is Director of Clinical Design and Community Health with Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, so I'm going to give the mic. I'm going to. We're going to go left to right here, and they're going to tell us a little bit about their work as related specifically to ACEs and what we're going to talk about today. So, um, oh, Doctor, we're good to go. We're going to get those up. So uh, first, Doctor Ali. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you for the invitation to speak today. I am Dr. Kemi Ali. I am also a pediatrician. Um, I, am, I practice at Henry J. Austin for almost 20 years. Um, prior to becoming the chief executive officer, I was the chief medical officer. And when I became the chief medical officer, I really wanted to understand the history and the foundation of health centers. And in doing so, that was my first experience with understanding the link between poverty and health. And in fact, health centers, federally qualified health centers, were born out of the movement on the war on poverty. Dr. Jack Geiger, who was the founder, was charged with going out into the rural communities of the South and helping people register to vote. It was in doing so that he discovered people were literally too sick to come out of their homes. And so the first health centers were funded from the Department of Economic Development, and it was part of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And so this link between poverty and health was understood even then. It was also as I began to explore this understanding between poverty and health, coming to understand some of the roots of poverty as it relates to structural racism. And so as we have conversations around adverse childhood events, understanding those roots and having those conversations I think is important as well. And poverty as we know and was discussed, I think is important as it relates to this intricate web, as I was saying, between structural racism, poverty, and health. But importantly because poverty 
whether rural, urban, as we discussed, is what links to and yep, uh, toxic environments. And it is these toxic environments that have effects on the body that is similar to being on the front lines in a war. I always think about that as I think about trauma and the experiences that children go through in these toxic environments. The physiological effect that happens day in and day out, if you can imagine, is as if you're a soldier on the front lines in a war. And we now understand, and it's very disturbing, that these effects can be passed from mother to child. And also, that as children develop, their brains, the neural chemical structures are changed. And that is the understanding of how that leads to the ACEs and the consequences that we see. It is very interesting that as a pediatrician, I was always baffled by why parents would come in day in and day out. And they obviously wanted their children to be healthy and well, otherwise they wouldn't have come in. But they wouldn't make the behavior changes we needed and required for them to be healthy. As was said in the video, this understanding of ACEs sort of just blew the lid off of that and made so much sense in terms of the sequela of poverty, toxic environments, adverse childhood events, neurochemical structures that change within the body that result in behavior changes that lead to chronic illness. And so as we discuss this topic, thinking about how far upstream do we want to go is important. As we create systems designed to prevent ACEs and build resiliency, thinking about poverty and how we uplift individuals out of poverty, but also how we break down institutions of structural racism. Thank you. Thank you, Lilo. Appreciate being here. Um, and, and I think the reason you mentioned me as an epidemiologist for people that don't know, prior to joining the Nicholson Foundation, I was the Deputy Commissioner for Public Health Services at the New Jersey Department of Health. And as a practice pediatrician, I went on to get a degree in public health precisely because of this downstream problem that I was seeing among children, many children and families that I was treating. Uh, this problem of adverse experiences that uh, unfortunately were unaddressed. And I saw early on in my career that by not being addressed, they were much harder to handle. So that's why I'm here today to share uh, some of those experiences, both as a pediatrician, but also now as a foundation lead. And why would I be interested in this? Why is our foundation interested? Why is the Burke Foundation um, and the Toro Fund, as part of the New Jersey Funders ACES Collaborative, interested in this problem? Well. We're very strategic about the way we spend our resources. And in partnership with the Department of Children and Families and Commissioner Byer and her leadership, uh, we've been working with, with her um, almost for the last year to really think about the best way to spend those resources. And we couldn't think of a better way than to start uh, developing a statewide action plan that addresses adverse childhood experiences by first trying to figure out ways to prevent them from happening in the first place 
then offer opportunities uh, for parents and others uh, throughout the state um, to uh, protect uh, from ACEs when they do occur. And lastly, to help those of us in the state who have been impacted by ACEs um, to heal from them. Uh, ACEs are at the root cause of so many, as I saw in practice, I know Dr. Ali and Dr. Rogers will be speaking later, are uh, seeing practice, of so many, not only mental health and emotional problems, but also physical problems that are independent of those. That's the most fascinating thing to me, is that um, how the brain architecture has uh, changed and will impact a child lifelong because they've had these experiences and they remain unaddressed. Um, so as part of the New Jersey Funders ACES Collaborative, I am just so uh, proud to be part of this, but we know this is just the beginning. And one of the things I, I wanna talk about later um, is to emphasize the fact that everyone in this room and anyone in this state that wants to be involved can get involved um, by going to the website, um, the microsite, if you will, that is inside the uh, executive summary that we provided for everyone here of the report that we put together um, and reading the entire report. And then we wanna hear your feedback and your thoughtful comments because this is how we're gonna get to the solutions in plural form of how we can start to prevent, protect from, and heal from ACEs in the state of New Jersey. Thank you. Commissioner. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, so. Listening to what doctors Ali and Brito both said, um, those are the families that we serve within the Department of Children and Families. We serve over 100,000 women, children, and men monthly. We have access to really change the trajectory of, um, and opportunities to change people's trajectories. One of the things that we're really working on in the department now is about moving to a more healing-centered um, practice and approaches to our work. But we know that right now, the, most of our dollars and most of the resources that we spend in the department are uh, post-intervention. It's post-maltreatment. It's after something has already occurred within a family. And we are then um, providing interventions to help heal or repair damage that may have been done um, in the family. And really what we've been working on over the last 18 months and with this administration is really looking at how we can shift that and put more of our resources into prevention and looking at going as upstream as possible to that primary prevention at a very young age to be able to help create positive childhood experiences versus the adversity that currently exists in many families. Um, you know, as we've talked about and as we've heard, um, ACEs are prevalent within um, the population. And some of the communities not only maybe are experiencing adversity within their families, but there's also a level of community ACEs that is not part of the original study. And I think it's something that now is becoming um, more talked about. And I think um, some of the new ACE pyramids have like the community piece on the bottom, because we know that that impacts um, development, we know that that impacts people um, and children in terms of their development. And so, the, um, you know. Sorry, I think the report, the, the funders report talks about adverse community environments, right? Yes. I think that's yep. what's, yeah. Absolutely, okay. we'll talk absolutely, yeah, sorry, thank you. Um, and so, 
you know, at the department then, working with the Funders Collaborative, um, we're really looking forward to being able to um, help impact and make some significant changes with um, how we work with communities, how we work with families. And in doing that, the other thing I will say is we're also looking internally. We're looking at our own policies and procedures. We're looking at our own staff and their health and wellness because we know that because ACEs are so prevalent, and we also know that many people who go into helping professions have had adversity in their own past, um, or a higher rate, I will say, of people who go into the helping profession are because they want to give back. Um, and so, you know, that coupled with the fact that the work of our department um, is you know, really um, many times focused on traumas. We have so many staff with secondary trauma that we're really looking to also address and see how we can heal our staff so that they're better equipped then to be able to work with the um, children and families in our communities. So I'm really excited to be having this conversation and looking forward to working with all of you and our communities across the state. Thank you, and I think we're, we're I'd like to talk at some point a bit, a little bit about staff development and training because I noticed that's one of the themes that comes up is the importance of preparing people who are working in this field. So, yeah. sorry, Dr. Rogers. So, uh, as a clinician, I'm a little bit of an interloper because I'm not a pediatrician. I'm actually a family physician. Um, which means I spend my time sort of thinking about people of, of all ages. And just a couple of reminders, uh, just to reiterate a couple of things. The original ACEs work was done with a CDC Kaiser study in California, um, essentially telling us that this original work was done with a population of insured, primarily employed people. And so this is actually a fairly universal phenomenon. Um, I think that uh, for many, many of you in this room, if you were to take um, the ACEs assessment, you would find that you have ACEs in your lives. And one of the things that's worth contemplating if you indeed find those ACEs is what are the things in your life that allowed you to sort of overcome the traumas that you could have experienced. Because the difference between um, better off socioeconomically populations and those that are less well off is they don't have the same access to some of those things that allow us to more easily overcome our traumas. Um, that said, uh, related to the commissioner's comments and others, um, what we now know is that poverty in and of itself is an adverse experience for children. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has articulated this very well. The American Academy of Pediatrics, I, I so have actually specialty envy at this moment, um, because the American Academy of Pediatrics has really been leaders in both talking about the adverse impact of poverty in children, and just last month came out with an incredibly comprehensive report talking about the adverse impact of racism on children and adolescents. So I want to in the middle of my remarks, um, uh, make my take home message. And, and my take home message is what I'd like to do is to have all of you join me in while we're working very diligently to address adverse childhood experiences, let's actually also work to eliminate poverty. 
Um, we can do it. We have enough resources in this country to do it. We just don't talk about it, and we just don't feel like we have the courage to do it. But let's actually, everybody in this room, make a commitment to begin to talk about eliminating poverty in this country, because then we give a whole lot of people who are suffering from a whole lot of adversity in their lives the opportunities to do better. I think the, um, the only other thing that I want to say is that um, we can also think creatively about interventions for people who have experiences uh, that have, have been very adverse. And, and as a family physician, I also want us to understand that adults who have experienced six or more adverse experiences in childhood will live on average 20 years less than their equivalent counterparts. If we only focus on children, we are writing off a generation of adults who have experienced this trauma and who will die prematurely from this trauma. So we must enter into this conversation, not only what we do for the parents of children who have been traumatized, but adults overall. Because do we really want to say as a society, which quite frankly we much too often do, is that your value as a parent supersedes your value as a human being. And what we really want is to create an environment where we are valuing all human beings in this society and we are willing to address all of their trauma. A slight asterisk in terms of my passion around this is I'm also chairing the Homelessness Commission in Newark. And if we look at the homeless, we know we find disproportionately higher rates of trauma in their lives. And some of them are, and many of them are not parents. And yet we must value them as well and be willing to do comprehensive trauma-informed interventions for people in all age ranges and in all, I guess, status, if you will, related to being parents versus not. And on that, I will shut up. That's a, that's a heavy way to start, but yeah. Thank wow. you. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say, that's a hard act to follow. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Denise. I feel for you. Uh, yeah, you, I'll try. I'll try. I'll do my best. Um, so just introduce myself again. I'm Tracy Paris Benjamin. I'm a social worker by training. And this work, to me, is just so inviting and enticing because this is what I went to school for. This is my passion. Over 20 years, most of my experience has been around direct practice, working with children, families at risk, or populations and communities that are underserved. I now have the pleasure of working for Horizon to develop clinical programs that are focused around looking at community health and being able to marry the two. One of the challenges, I think, for most health plans and a payer is that we see a patient as a claim. A claim comes in and it indicates to us that a patient is diabetic or they have hypertension. And we don't see the rest of that picture. The challenge is getting that human data from the member to tell us what else is going on, to change the trajectory in terms of the way in which we identify and even think about these members, changing the language. We use things such as non-compliant, super utilizers. Um, these types of nomenclature and you know the way in which we identify patients paints a picture for how we see them. 
And one of my roles is really be, is being able to change that language. What is the reason why this member is unable to, to comply? What else is going on? Why is the ER used as the primary source versus an urgent care center or a primary care physician? And one of the things that we did was we started a small pilot of utilizing community health workers. Community health workers is primarily a non-clinical resource. It's a non-clinical resource in the community that mirrors the persons in the community. We know that there's affirmation and commonality when we meet folks who've either endured or have had similar experiences. And the ability to connect with folks in that fashion allows for us to really get at the root of what else is going on in that member life. Uh, through this small pilot, what we were able to identify is that on a small commercial population, like Denise said, I think it's important that we distinguish that because a lot of times these programs have been around Medicaid populations, that these are things that only happen to folks in poor communities. Yes, they do. But I think when we think about ACEs, we're thinking excuse me, we're thinking about it from a holistic fashion. We're thinking about it from people's ability to thrive. So long story short, and I can probably be extremely long-winded, so I apologize for that, but what I will say is this, is what we found through that program is several of these members who are the working poor had challenges covering the cost of childcare, transportation, access, living in isolation, depression, and we found that the underlying root of a lot of these issues were traumatic experiences that happened to these adults, whether it was an assault, whether it was being cursed at in the home as a child, that now manifest into fear with going to a doctor, manifest in fear of just not being able to kind of manage or juggle things, that the priority is their children, but they're dealing with these unresolved issues that continue to manifest themselves. And one of the things we really found is having that dialogue and making it okay not to be okay to begin to have those conversations is what drives the change in overall healthcare. So it's not just improving the health of members from a disease standpoint, it's looking at the whole person. And that's what Horizon is really focused on doing now. So I'll leave it at that for a moment. Hopefully I, I made up a little bit with what Denise gave over here. But thank you so much. Thank you, that's interesting, yeah. I, I would love to hear uh, non-compliant be changed at some point, that would be or to have the underlying problem resolved. That would be even better. So, um, so I want to start um, here with Dr. Ali um, talking. And keep that mic down there. I'll pass over. Um, tell us a little bit about what this actually, what ACEs looks like when you're treating children. And I'm Dr. Rogers, I want to come to you next and talk about adults. And you know, sort of a little bit into the clinical stuff here. What is it? How do they present, as you guys say? So I, I think as was discussed on the panel, it's a combination of two things. So one, ACEs in young children presents often um, sort of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg that you don't see under the surface. But the tip you see is inappropriate behavior. 
hyperactivity, inability to focus, uh, inability to pay attention and behave. And we all know the long history and the, the very unfortunate history of many children being misdiagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And there was the, the whole industry conversation about how many children, and particularly from impoverished and disenfranchised areas, being prescribed Ritalin, right? Everybody saw the Ritalin uh, articles and conversations around that. And I think fast forward now, 30 years later, 25 years later, understanding the root and probably the major cause for those inappropriate behaviors, inability to focus, inability to pay attention, hyperactivity, was the inability to control themselves based on the neural, chemical, structural changes as it relates to adverse childhood events. And that is why medication didn't work. Um, and, and so coming out of pediatric residency and trying to help families, it was really frustrating 20 years ago when everyone wanted children on medication. And I think the second part to that, and, and then finally understanding that behavior modification, cognitive behavioral therapy helped a lot more, and now we know why. Um, and I think the second piece to that, as was mentioned, understanding that children don't live in isolation, and that you can't have a healthy child if you don't have a healthy family unit. It's impossible. And so in treating the children, we also have to remember to treat the whole family unit. And so often the parents, the grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, also need mental behavioral health care as well. So you can't treat one without the other. Thank you. Taking notes furiously. Dr. Rogers, let's talk about adults. That last thing she said, spoken like a true family doctor, right, I'm just you saying, go. you know? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so what do we see in adults? Um, we, we see what you would expect, right? We see people with different types of addictions. Um, if you look at people with opioid use, for example, disorder, um, the studies show us that a disproportionately high number of them have higher numbers of adverse childhood experiences. Um, we see alcoholism. We see people who engage in overeating. We see people who suffer disproportionately from depression and anxiety disorder. Um, we see disproportionately people who smoke cigarettes. Um, and, and so therefore, we see all of these associated adverse health consequences, right? So people dying a higher proportion from heart disease and cancer. <clears throat> Death by suicide is higher uh, in people who've suffered multiple adverse experiences. Um, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy actually, um, as well as um, other types of interventions, even including things like mindfulness and exercise, can make a difference. Because I think the, the tricky thing when we talk about adverse experience is, you know, it is the, the data and the reality can be so overwhelming sometimes that we forget there are things that can be done. And that this isn't sort of having multiple aces is not sort of this death sentence like, oh, your life is gonna be miserable and messed up forever. There are things that you can do, there are things that we can provide both in the healthcare system and quite frankly, increasingly what we're interested in is there are things that we can do to create healthier communities 
um, as well that can make a difference in the lives of children and adults. Thank you. Sorry, it strikes me as you're as you're describing this that, you know, when I was growing up, people who who had some of these reactions or these 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 um, if that's how they they presented, if you will, to go back to the clinical terms, you know, people would say, oh, they just had a hard life, you know, and and it was sort of excusing it. And it was also, it, now that I'm thinking about it, and stop me if I'm wrong, it's also dismissing it in a way that can't do anything about that. That's too bad, you know. If, if I can just pick up on that for a quick second. So, so there is the narrative of I had a hard life. What also confounds it, though, particularly in people who are very, from very religious communities, is if you just pray hard enough, you can overcome your hard life, right? And so my response to that is, we don't say that if people have diabetes or hypertension, right? It's so, and don't get me wrong, prayers are good, but, but there are other things that often we need to add because we blame people for not being able to overcome their hard lives, right? It's just, you, didn't just, you didn't work hard enough or you didn't pray hard enough, right? And what we really want to do is create a culture that says it is totally appropriate and fine to go and get mental health services in addition to other self-help things that you may do for yourself. Because it's, it, it makes me think again of addiction in that, you know, this is a disease. We're going to treat it as a disease. Sorry, I'm going down the rabbit hole. Doctor, I'm sorry, Commissioner, um, tell us a little bit about how folks come into contact with your department, sort of where, how, how are they funneling into the state system, if you will? And, um, and, and what is that, you know, what do you see when they come in the door, if you will, if such as it is? So that I could probably take a couple hours to answer that um, because we have a very large department. And I think what I will say is that um, the general public believes that the way most individuals come into contact with our department is as a result of an abuse and neglect report coming into the hotline. That is the way that many families do come to our attention. Um, we do go out and investigate child abuse and neglect. However, there are many calls that come to the hotline that are not severe abuse and neglect. They are poverty related. They are child welfare calls that come in because there's adults in the life of a child that are concerned that maybe they're not getting what they need. Um, a tragedy that occurs in our system is that we have parents themselves who call the child abuse and neglect hotline for support and services. And that is a tragedy, that we don't have a system structured in a way that parents can get the support they need without calling the abuse and neglect agency. Um, so we really have done a lot of work at the department to reduce the number of children who come into um, out-of-home care. We actually, of the 47,000 children that we have under supervision today are open receiving services. 90% of those children are intact within their families, intact in home. We have um, 4,700 children in out-of-home care. Um, 
which is down from over 13,500 at the start of our reform efforts in 2003. So the system really is working to be able to serve and support families in their communities. And I think the reason we've been able to reduce the number of children in out-of-home care is because we also created the Division of Family and Community Partnerships, which is really focused on primary prevention, and also the Children's System of Care. We serve 50,000 children every month in the Children's System of Care. And that is not a call to the hotline. That is an 1-800 number that any, any person in the state can call um, to seek behavioral, mental health, substance abuse services for their children. And so I think it's those two things, the children's system of care and um, the prevention division, that really have made a difference um, in terms of the supports that are getting to families earlier um, and that they don't have to be classified as having been abuse and, you know, abused or neglected. Um, I think that the primary prevention programs that we have in the department, that's where we need to continue to grow the work because we have home visiting in all 21 counties. I do think that if we can move to having like a universal home visiting model is my dream, um, that people can, maybe they only need a light touch um, or maybe they need a more intensive two-year intervention, but really being able to connect with families, help them, um, help new parents connect to their communities, connect to the supports that they need early on to be able to get them um, whatever help that they need um, so that they can grow strong families. I'm curious, just before you, we go on, are you seeing... Are, are those programs, the children's systems of care in particular, mm -hmm. are, are those income restricted or dependent no. and and what do you see do you is that across all a, a variety of income groups or yeah how it does is that? um so the children's system of care was built on the medicaid platform and so the services that are provided through that division um we bill medicaid there are many families so income eligibility does not preclude you from participating there are many families that re have their children receiving um, services through their private health care insurance, but maybe they participate in our system for respite or camp programs. So there, it's a combination. Uh, when you are participating in um, the system of care, it, you could be all in and you're getting all of your services through us or just piecing it together for, you know, to ensure your child's getting the best support and help, excuse me, help that they can. Thank you. Dr. Britta, um, I want to ask you a little bit about what what brought the funders together in New Jersey to tackle this problem. Was there was there a sort of a moment when you, I mean, what was the spark, and why now? Yeah, there was a moment. There was a moment. Um, Atia Weiss, who's the executive director of the Burke Foundation, Kurt Fields, CEO of the Turo Fund, and uh, I. We were meeting with others. Uh, to try to address early childhood issues. And I walked into that office, literally having just, with the book, having just finished reading the book, The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris. And I'm sure a lot of people in this room have read it, but if you haven't, it's an amazing read. That it was, that was the spark. And I mentioned to Atiyah, I think she's here somewhere. Um, wow, I just finished reading this book and, and she said she had read it. And we've all had seen her discussion about uh, Nadine Burke Harris's um, TED Talk on ACEs, and if you haven't seen that, definitely to see it. it, is just incredible. And 
what that did, from there, we invited Nadine Burke-Harris, um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, to come to an event in November. We put 90 people in that room that we thought could help, um, that we felt needed to hear about this, but also help us start developing the statewide action plan. Uh, Commissioner Byer was there and made some comments. But what that book did for me and for us is to really demonstrate that something needs to be done to change our broken healthcare system. Uh, we keep going on this treadmill over and over doing the same thing. And I mean, there's some great work being done, but it feels like a treadmill that it doesn't really take care of the root cause of the problems. And this is what dealing with ACEs will do, is take care of the root cause of the problem so we don't have to depend on a healthcare system that no matter how you fix it, it's way too costly. And um, so that was really the spark, and I credit Atia for having the drive to uh, bring Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris uh, here, uh, who, by, by the way, is now uh, California's first Surgeon General because that governor saw what she brought to the table, and I think that's incredible. Uh, says a lot about a governor also who understands how dealing with issues upstream can make a huge difference. Um, but that, that was the moment. I, if, if you don't mind, I want to go back yeah. to I just, how, Before uh, you uh, do, sure. I just want to say, um, the, the First Lady was, um, we invited her to be part of this event today because she was part of that, right. in my, right. I believe, uh, that kickoff event. And she, um, Tammy Murphy, feels very passionately about these things. Unfortunately, she's in India, so <laughs> it's not exactly convenient. So, yeah. sorry, continue. So I just wanted to respond a little bit to how ACEs present. And I, I, what I find interesting, you know, for the original 1998 ACEs study, the landmark study by Drs. Felitti and Anda, what often people don't remember or know is how Dr. Felitti developed that study and what was his spark. And he was working as a physician in an obesity clinic for people with morbid obesity. And he observed that individuals um, there was a pattern where people would lose a lot of weight, but then gain it right back, and on and so on and so forth. And as he describes it, um, just by happenstance, uh, one of his patients that had gone through that cycle of losing weight, gaining it back, revealed to him that she had been sexually assaulted as a child. And then he started, wow, that was his spark, his aha moment. And then he started asking other patients about issues like sexual assault or domestic violence, and he started putting it together. So the point is that ACEs can present in so many, when underdressed, can present in so many ways in adulthood and in children. Um, you know, children that have continual exacerbations of asthma that may be environmentally driven, but also may be emotionally driven because they, you know, how do you handle the issues that you've had uh, when there's nobody there to guide you through them? So I think that's really important to understand. Thank you, yeah. Um, uh, Ms. Paris Benjamin, I was wondering if you'd like to tell us a little bit about what you see, thank you, um, as how this plays out in sort of um, wider community. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the community, sort of the environmental, um, the factors that play in and, and sort of perhaps how ACEs impact communities, how people with ACEs impact. Is that something you can talk a little bit sure, about? Sure, sure. I feel like there's so I, many things I can mention. but Part of the reason I'm thinking yeah. of that, and the, re, the there was a fascinating fact in the or, or, uh, 
piece of data in the report, which was that the sort of the, the I guess it was an attempt to quantify the cost or, uh, of ACEs, and it mm -hmm. was 400 and some billion dollars nationwide. And and I'm I curious how we came up with that, but I'm I'm just thinking bigger bigger picture. Sure. Sort of what is the impact here? Sure, I think for me the focus on the community is key, and no one agency can do this alone. So it's a matter of raising that awareness that folks or individuals realize that ACES is something that is that we should be addressing, that not to address it, we do a disservice to those who come through our healthcare system. Um, you know, you don't treat a portion of a patient, you treat them from a holistic perspective, you, from start to finish. So it's making sure that we train and educate our physicians around, you know, addressing ACEs, to have that dialogue, to have that conversation, uh, but also making the communities aware, whether that's faith-based organizations, schools, that to begin to have these deeper conversations that don't only focus primarily on what's happening with the child or the family, but what we're not seeing. So I think from my perspective with regards to Horizon is that we continue to see a broken system, right? Traditional healthcare programs of care coordination and population management, while they're good in theory, they only address a portion of what's happening and they don't necessarily sustain what's happening with the patient from a long-term standpoint. So it's very crisis-driven, you know? It's the person had uh, MI, the person had a heart attack, they had a stroke. Um, so we're gonna, you know, send them to cardiac rehab, they go, they get the treatment, they're now on medication. But what we did not ever focus on was the fact that this person has a family history of that, uh, of cardiac disease, but they're also living not only in poverty, but they're also living with the trauma of generational poverty. And when we talked about having a hard life, um, for many, that just becomes, the, well, that's the cards you were dealt. And the inability to accept that you could not overcome that is a failure in itself. So the way that I see this is costs will continue to rise and rise, whether it's Horizon at the table or whether it's you know the Department of Health. For us to manage this, it starts with the communities. It starts by having those dialogues, you know? So the programs, yes, is a, is a big piece of that, to educate our teams, to make sure that they're aware of what ACES is, how to offer the training, how to render assessments, and then how to recognize your own trauma so that they appropriately address because that's one of the that's I think that's one of the caveats of this is that as folks are doing ACEs they and they go into the profession to help they may start reliving things that have occurred to them mm -hmm. which then creates a larger problem so the programs that we're developing and focus on now really look at the root and what can we do from a standpoint of addressing the member from an overall perspective. So what that means is utilizing, at least that's our first step, utilizing community health workers to have that dialogue, training these community health workers. We're actually working with the center for, we're working with UPenn, uh, who has a research-based community health worker model. Um, and several of my counterparts at the table have wor are working with UPenn as well, where we're starting to think of how do we think about making communities trauma-informed, right? So that it's okay to have that discussion. 
Um, what I do feel is that over time, we will begin to see that ROI. I think for a health plan, for a payer, you know, that's the challenge that we get. So what is, what is gonna be the return on investment? Because we're not gonna see these things right away. Um, I think the value add is we want to definitely see a healthier society. And in turn, we believe, and we've seen it, that cost will decrease, that people will utilize appropriate services. They will go to a behavioral health specialist. Not everyone needs a psychiatrist. I think that's important. Sometimes people think, oh, mental health, that means I need a psychiatrist. Whether that is your clergy, whether that is your pastor, you know, your priest, um, educating those folks about ACEs to begin to have the dialogue. What it then supports is almost opening the door for other interventions to be able to take place. So if I authorize, I'm, I'm your pastor, I'm your clergyman, and I say, you know, you've been through something traumatic, it's okay to actually seek help. What I'm now endorsing is the social worker. I'm now endorsing the psychiatrist. I'm endorsing the doctor. I think that's where we need to come together on this. So that's how I think it'll impact costs overall. Yeah, please. And as as you pass the mic, please. Yeah, I'm just thinking uh, it, part of this takes envisioning a very different society. And it takes envisioning something healthy, which in some ways, it's like a measuring a, a, a measuring the lack of something, you know, the lack of, of you know, healthcare needs as it, it just, it's kind of mind blowing. Sorry, Commissioner. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on that because you know, it is so wonderful to hear that the healthcare communities are really stepping up and, and thinking about creating trauma-informed communities or assisting in that way. One of the things that I'm very concerned about, though, is that, that we not be creating silos, that the work is being done in the healthcare communities, that the work is being done in the social service communities, that this work also needs to happen in schools and in school settings. And so I think that's where the role of government also can be helpful and working with the Funders Collaborative and private philanthropy is really bringing um, together a larger approach to this work and that we can all identify what pieces of it we have because we are, it's many times, it's the same families. The families that we see um, have health insurance or, you know, sometimes, and those children go to school and it may be families who are also receiving services from human services around SNAP and TANF and, um, and so we're spending a lot of money individually and we don't talk um, enough to really think about um, how we can work more collaboratively um, and truly collaboratively in that not one system needs to own the problem or needs to own the individual, but really developing um, it, it will be a big shift in how we actually view um, our society and view all of our roles in society, but that I think is, is really gonna be paramount to if we're going to see any significant change. Yeah, please. So, so the other thing we need, and thank you so much actually for the, for the plug of this cross-sector approach, because I think in our Believe in a Healthy Newark ACE Impact team, that's exactly what we're trying to do, which is to get constituencies in a variety of areas around the table talking about this so that we can be supportive and collaborative. But what we also need is, sorry Tracy, but we need behavioral health parity in payment for your insurance. 
we, we need to make it as easy to go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist as to see the dermatologist. I mean, let's get real, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's in Obamacare. Haven't quite gotten there. Like, not hardly at all. Um, I didn't really say that. But, but if we truly believe that these issues are physiological and biologically based, which we now have plenty of evidence to prove there is, we need to make it just as easy to go and get mental health services as everything else. Because of this craziness that somehow there's a difference between mental health and physical health, not so much. Um, I think the other thing we need more of, thank you Arturo, is more integrated care. So that behavioral health providers, be they social workers, psychologists, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, are in primary care settings. Kemi does it at her health center. Arturo is, is providing funding so that we can expand it throughout the state. My ultimate goal would be at a minimum Every FQHC should have an integrated model of practice. Every also large institutional, so hospital-based primary care clinics should have an integrated model. So that the other thing is, I don't have to drive to that place that has a sign that says mental health services, but in the context of my primary care, I'm also able to get my behavioral health care services. So that's my other plug. And I think, yeah, and my, my <laughs> please, and my understanding is um, th that some of that holdup has been state regulators, not your department, um, but, that, right, and, but elsewhere um, where there's been, you know, sort of a cross-current issue and uh, supposed to be getting better, um, theoretically. Anyway, I have to check it as a story I should follow yeah. up on. No, anyway, I wasn't going to say I'm going to fix it. No, we can't fix it overnight, but I just do want to highlight just a couple of things. Um, one of the things Horizon has taken a step at is really looking at what you're talking about. And we have now actually insourced our behavioral health. It was something that we've outsourced for many, many years. We've never actually managed behavioral health as a health plan. And I think that Part of that has to do with that concerted effort about connecting the physical and the mental. So I want to be able to say that. But the other thing is that we are actually looking at several various payment models around integrated health. So we do have several uh, you know, physician practices where it's primary care where they're now doing integrated care and we're providing you know, extra value and payments for those particular providers. So that is definitely in place. But I think one of the challenges is that we have is there's still a lot of stigma around behavioral health. So while we definitely have to improve payment, it's even getting folks that need behavioral health. Most of the medical issues that we see underlying that are manifested behavioral health concerns. I mean, if someone has diabetes and this is changing your lifestyle, you've been newly diagnosed, it's sometimes the conversations around depression come through, but if it actually hasn't been something that maybe the patient has discussed, it's not always something that it becomes a prevalent discussion in general. Most of the conversation is around the disease. So there's so many facets and pieces to this that I think that yes, payment is huge because we need, obviously everybody has to live, right? So we, we, we need to, you know, to fix these things. But I think the other piece is just the stigma that's around behavioral health and making sure that folks and communities feel comfortable going to get the help in which they need. Bring it over here for a second, Dr. Arley. 
And, and I was going to say that is the beauty of integrated care, as yeah. Denise mentioned, because all the services are in one location. And so actually, a primary care provider and your behavioral health provider can go into the exam room at the exact same time. They both talk and know what's happening. I just think it's so interesting, and hopefully nobody in this room did this, but when you design the system to break apart, that you go to this building for your mental health care, you go to that building across town for your primary care, and you go to yet another building for your substance abuse care. Um, and so the logic and of that I do not understand because as you've mentioned, it is one body and they are all connected and intertwined. And so being able to receive the services, all of them, in one location, and the dream would be ultimately one provider, and there are programs that train providers to do all, which is, again, very interesting. If you remember the general practitioners, like our parents and grandparents, when they went to one provider, and he did or she did everything, um, again, that is probably the best solution because you are one human being and being holistic in that treatment plan. What is old is new again. Yeah. Um, yeah, before we move on to what we should be doing, which I'd sort of envisioned at the end so we could all leave in a dreamy state, but there's plenty to talk about. But um, before we get there, um, Dr. Berto, tell us a little bit more about, um, I know there's some of the things that in the report you highlighted some models that, um, or some programs that are, that are having some success. So tell us about what you're seeing there. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to say that um, this is not the first time ACEs are being addressed in the city of New Jersey. Uh, we have a lot of communities throughout the state, Cape May and Newark, Trenton, throughout the state doing different models. And I want to use this opportunity to mention a couple sectors I've been mentioned because uh, they're part of the equation too. Law enforcement. Chris Lusner, I don't know if he's here today, but he is the uh, state wide police chief was Middle Township police chief um, and he's training all the officers there and now trying to do statewide about ACEs and what to do about it and how to handle uh, them in the real-life settings and I think that is incredible um, then we have other uh, communities uh, Carrie Lagoso who's on tape in, in Newark doing some work there and and in Cape May they're doing work because of the rurality of that area and and the impact that ACEs have because of lack of access to services. So what's different though about what we're doing with the report is trying to put it all together. Um, and I want to go back to something Commissioner Byer was saying. It's going to take all of us. We This statewide action plan on ACEs is really bring the private and public sectors together um, because it can't be done just with one side. And this is something the Nicholson Foundation focuses a lot on what we call riding the wave. We have to be together on that surfboard. We have to be together with the uh, public sector to use our resources collectively as best as possible. And Lilo, you had mentioned earlier, or you were about to ask about that study that we mentioned in the report about the economic costs of this. In 2015 dollars, more or less, when the report uh, was released a year after that, it was estimated for child maltreatment alone and direct cost alone, okay? And child maltreatment is a subset of ACEs, okay? It was, it's costing the country in, those, in that year $425 billion. And where it's costing us is in our education system, in our healthcare system, and in our business sector. Uh, Kurt Fields, the CEO of the Toro Fund, comes from a business background. This is why this partnership between the foundations is so strong, because we come from different backgrounds, and we're all addressing the same issue. What 
How does ACEs affect the business world? Lost days at work, sick days, so on and so forth, and it's lost productivity. So it behooves the business sector to also get really involved in this, otherwise your companies, no matter how big or small, aren't gonna be as strong as they should be, um, so. It's a lot to think about. Are there things that these programs, that successful programs have in common? Um, I mean, I know, are there elements that, that people see? Um, I mean, we have, a, we have a question that's slightly different, but it, well, it's, the, the importance of family-driven goals. Um, family is determining what to address, family, and the importance of family, family non-professional support, which I think is a slightly separate issue, but family-driven goals. Um, it seems to me one of the things that really has to be part of this is that it is sort of ground up um, and that it's community-driven. And who wants to talk a little bit about that? Excellent, there's a mic right there. As the family doc. <laughs> So this is, this is the whole premise, actually, of something called motivational interviewing, which is you kind of want to meet people where they are, right? And, and part of this work is to sort of help families, or actually help clinicians understand where families are coming from and what their goals are. Same thing with communities. I mean, I think that, that we want to meet with communities and understand what their priorities are and sort of try to meet their objectives. But let's get real. People don't know what they don't know. And so if I don't understand ACEs and the impact on my health, right, and if I don't understand what those interventions are, then what I may be putting forward is not necessarily the best approach. And that gets back to what I was saying earlier. There's tremendous, tremendous sort of blaming that we do of people who can't overcome their hard lives. And very often, family agendas are around. I can tell you that from my own practice. People coming into me with guilt over the fact that they're depressed and you talk about what their life circumstances are and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, obviously not saying it out loud, but how could you not be depressed, right? And yet this, you know, I can't talk about it because, you know, I've tried everything. And, and so we have to marry both because there's a little bit of mythology, I think, that we have that, you know, oh, if we just go to communities and they have all the answers. Well, quite frankly, if communities had all the answers, many of the problems that we see wouldn't be there. We need to work with communities and provide resources to communities and partner with communities. And that's the exact same thing we need to do with families. So that it is a yes and rather than sort of an either or situation. Okay, thank you. Let's, um, I wanna ask a little bit about training. Commissioner, you were talking about the training you were doing and also recognizing the impact on staff. Why is that so important? I mean, training seems to be another theme that comes up frequently here. Yeah. Um, I think training is one I mean, maybe component. Maybe it's obvious, but I want to I want no, to I don't of I don't think it's obvious. I think that training is what people go to first and most often. Um, it's the most obvious in that we want to raise awareness and we want to educate our workforce and we want to educate the general public on ACEs or whatever the topic is we're discussing. And so we are going to be looking to roll out um, ACE awareness training um, through the department. And um, it will be not only training our own department staff. We have 6,600 employees um, within the Department of Children and Families. 
but also training our providers, our provider communities, through a train-the-trainer model. And so that's something that um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about because I think it's giving people the tools to better understand. It's not giving them the answer of, so then how do I treat this individual person sitting in front of me? Um, but maybe I can understand their situation a little bit better or I'm gonna ask the questions to try and get to the underlying need. That's one piece. The other thing that we're doing at the department is really focusing on staff health and wellness. And um, I think it came up earlier on the panel about mindfulness being a tool. Um, we just released a mindfulness toolkit out to all of our staff um, as strategies and approaches that they can use to think you know, in their own life. Um, we also, I just announced two weeks ago that we um, hired an we're creating an office of staff health and wellness, and so we hired the executive director to lead that. So we will um, have somebody whose main responsibility, more than one, but one person leading, um, their main responsibility is to take care of staff health and wellness. Um, and we'll be doing a number of uh, surveys and things to try and get a baseline of where our staff are and then what are the interventions that are gonna be most helpful in being able to, to heal them. The, the other piece of that, though, and why I think our staff, um, as much as they are faced with adversity kind of in their work every day and the traumas that they experience, um, I feel like they're able to continue to come to work every day because they have the connections with the other staff in their offices. In some ways, our offices are like little communities. And that's one of the things that we know is so important to healing from adversity um, or you know, keeping it from happening in the first place is that protective factors or um, having connections. Um, you know, Very often you hear, I know many people who have nine and 10 ACEs who are very successful, high-functioning adults. And in talking to them, they will go back and recount that there is one person or two people in their life that really made them believe in themselves or allowed them to know that they had worth and that they could succeed. And so I make that connection because I, I do think that it's what our staff need also. They need a sense of support and community and connection, um, and that's what we're trying to provide. So the mindfulness is how do you take care of yourself individually? Um, we have offices now that are creating comfort rooms, sensory environments, you know, so if you have a, a tough meeting or um, you, know, you are reading something that's really upsetting, that you can go and take care of yourself during the workday and you're not getting penalized for needing to step, a, to step away. Um, and so it's you know trying to create trauma-informed environments. Work, some of the work that your folks do is traumatizing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think um, we know that, and no one's really wanted to call it out and say right. it. And I'm very happy to call it out and say it. I, I have we have a very traumatized workforce, um, and I don't think there's any shame in that. I think it's in order to help our staff. Um, be the best that they can be so that they can then provide to our families what they need. If we have an injured workforce, they're not going to be able to help individuals. Um, and you know, a lot of times we talk about it like on an airplane, you know, when you have to, the mask drops and you have to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help the person next to you. So I think it's really kind of along those same lines. That's interesting. Yeah, I just, as you were saying that, I was remembering there was a piece in the New Yorker a while ago that wrote about 
what it's like for uh, a child welfare worker to come in and assess a family. Um, and the, the viewpoint was from the welfare worker and then from the, the, you know, the mother in this case. And you know the paranoia and the what you're looking at and the how not to respond and the how to respond. And it just, it seemed to me such an unbelievably complex dance and so the, the consequences are so incredibly high. I mean, of every, Absolutely. every thing, but that's a whole nother conference, sorry. Miss um, Paris Benjamin, I wanna ask you before, we're gonna, we're gonna take a, uh, we're gonna watch a short video and have a, a little interlude where we have a, a, a brief keynote um, from Dr. Hannah Hamdi. But before we do, can you tell us um, about the Newark Initiative? What is that? Sure. Um, I wanted to say one of the things that I think is key, at least with our approach, is approaching it not just from the payer side, but we have relationships with hospitals. So a lot of our large and our small volume hospitals, we collaborate with them on a lot of these initiatives. So it's not only just a job of the payer to develop these programs. We don't have all the insights. We don't know everything. We have to collaborate with our hospitals as well as our community-based partners. So I think that collaboration and those synergies is what makes this work um, and what makes us successful. So it's great to, to be a part of this panelist to to talk with Denise, to talk to Arturo, and to meet with others, to be able to say that we're joining and working on the same initiatives. Uh, the Newark Initiative basically was a pilot that was stemmed out of a challenge that kind of came from the World Health Organization, kind of looking at community health workers. Why does that work so well abroad and not so well, you know, in urban communities and in, you know, in the U.S.? And at the time, two leaders between RWJ and Horizon decided to kind of put this brainchild together and do this small pilot identifying four zip codes in Newark where we had members that were high risk with a PMPM of about $1,000 and their average spend was about 10 to 15 million for the year. The population that we're talking about was only 1,000 members. And what we did was collaborated with RWJ Barnabas and that's kind of when I was brought onto the team to kind of lead and implement this program. And we hired two community health workers that were from Newark um, that had a clear understanding of the community. They grew up in the community. They had a vested interest. Uh, they both were folks who already did a lot of things in the community and now had an opportunity to actually have a job now that really focused on a lot of the work that they were doing that was quite frankly unpaid for, right? They, they had a natural compassion to doing this kind of work. Uh, there was also a social worker who was a part of this team as well as a nurse. And the intent was to meet these members that we identified through claims. Uh, these were members who had hypertension, diabetes, obesity, uh, between age ranges of 18 to about 65. And what we found is several of these members had several underlying issues that we did not see. And when I say we as a health plan, weren't prevalent to us. 
housing issues, transportation, uh, childcare issues, caring for a loved one. Um, and caring for a loved one is not just necessarily an elderly person. I know sometimes, a lot of times, people think of caregiver stress, and they think about it as caring for an elderly parent. Uh, it might be caring for multiple children, caring for a child that has a disability. Uh, we met several parents who were caring for an autistic child, and they were working, and the stressors of that basically made it challenging for them to take care of their own health. Uh, so what the community health worker really did was meet them, whether that was in their home, uh, through the PCP office, and became a sounding board, uh, developed that trust, and then endorsed other members of the care team. So was able to say to Mrs. Smith, you know, you're going through a lot, you have 13 grandchildren. I mean, this is what we saw. And the dynamic of many of the um, many of the members that we saw were grandparents who were actually caring for their grandchildren or foster children. Um, one specific case in, in particular was uh, a, a former police officer, a retired police officer who many would think would have benefits, and he was losing his home. We identified him because he was a diabetic. And through, excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Through conversation, we were able to identify that one of his key concerns was not the diabetes, but the fact that he was being evicted from his home. Um, and he could not think about managing his diabetes. He just kept thinking about, I can't pay my rent, what am I gonna do? This community health worker was able to connect this particular member to a bank. Um, he was able to qualify for a loan. Uh, unbeknownst to him, he didn't know he would, and was able to sustain residency in his home. So that's just an example of some of the small things that we were able to do. Um, you know, And again, we wouldn't have identified this patient otherwise. You just would have said he's a non-compliant diabetic, a hemoglobin A1C of 13, who's you know just not treating himself. So the program lended itself to see improvements in behavioral health. We saw about 30% uh, improvement in behavioral health. We saw a decrease in behavioral visits. Um, so that gave me the challenge from upper management to say, this was fantastic, Tracy, let's scale this. So we're now scaling this program throughout New Jersey. Uh, the intent by the end of 2020 is to hire over 60 community health workers across the state to work with our hospital partners and to work with community-based organizations to see if this model truly works. We are not focused on any one social determinant. Uh, so whether it's housing, whether it's transportation, whether it's childcare, we're hoping that this model will evolve over time to tell us where we truly should focus. So throughout this, each member actually has a small mitigation fund. Uh, this mitigation fund allows for, let's say if someone needs an air conditioner in their home because they're an asthmatic. Um, and this is very, very non-traditional for a payer. I just have to say, even say. having these discussions <laughs> In Horizon, yes, like and I just want to before I go on. Um, initially, the funding came from tax rebate dollars. So the first pilot we did, it was a right. combination split between Horizon and RWJ. Following that, tax rebate dollars of about twenty-five million has been allotted and dedicated to this specific effort. 
This is so interesting. And I'm wondering if for some of these patients, when you're talking to them, if they're even identifying the problem as a problem that is something that they should be bringing up at that appointment. My guess is it's something that they're, you know what I mean? As though they're putting it in another category, so they're not presenting to you as, I need help with this problem. They're I think it goes back to what we talked about, about communities you know, dealing with the cards they've been dealt. Like if I'm going to the doctor, I'm only going to talk about what's happening now. I'm not going to talk about the inability to pay for, to keep my lights on. You know, they don't see that as a part of healthcare. So it's opening up that dialogue. Sure. So yes, to or your point. if they're like my mother, they want to put on their absolute best face for the doctor and oh, not yeah, look we sick at all. Too. Because God forbid. <laughs> anyway, we'll watch this video now. And why don't we stay seated? And um, if you don't mind, and uh, Dr. Hamdi will uh, come on up. Does that work? Okay. Or Steve. What led to that intervention? Analytics, not just for Mary, but for a thousand Horizon members in four Newark zip codes in the South Ward. Horizon says those members' claims showed a gap in care. That analysis also revealed high emergency room visits for primary care at Newark Beth Israel. So Horizon and RWJ Barnabas Health, both funders of NJTV, partnered to create a pilot two years ago called the Newark Initiative. Are you saving lives? I think so. I think we are. You know, as a nurse, you go into healthcare to help people. Saving lives is a very lofty goal that sometimes you're able to achieve. Horizon says it's committed $25 million to the program as it extends it to four years and expands it to a bigger area because it's improving outcomes and saving money. The numbers, reductions in care costs, admissions, emergency room visits, but an increase in behavioral health visits. It makes sense because most of what impacts people's lives, there's a component that their, their clinical needs need to be met. And I think at any of our facilities across our entire system, we will meet those needs with expert clinicians, docs, nurses, social workers, and the like. But there's an entire part of somebody's life that is really non-clinical needs that are finally recognized as needing to be met. And that has to do with the social determinants of health. Exactly. So uh, this is all evolving on the fly. Turns out uh, Dr. Hannah Hamdi is not going to speak right now because her comments were really designed to sort of frame our discussion. But she is going to publish a piece about her response to this. Um, and it's going to be worth a read. It is uh, going to be published on our site um, probably next week. So stay tuned for that. Um, before we go on. Yeah, before we go on, um, I have a question from the audience. Uh, can we ask the doctors to speak about the genetics of transmitting trauma sensitivity and genetic factors of resiliency? Um, you're nodding. Do you want to start, Dr. Ali? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the whole conversation is just truly amazing and disturbing at the same time. So that as we think about people that live in these toxic environments, and particularly women, and the response that the body has, as I said, very similar to being a soldier on the front line in a war. If you imagine all the hormones that are surging, right? You're getting ready to go into battle, and that's that flight or fight response. And so they're raging throughout your body. But imagine if you have that every day. 
or intermittently, sporadically, randomly throughout your life. And those hormones and those neurotransmitters actually go into your cells and change the DNA, change the genetic structure and makeup that is then passed on to the infant, the newborn. And then just imagine that life. You're beginning your life with these changes. And so, as Denise said, it's not all gloom and doom because you can also have resiliency. And it's very interesting. I think I was one of those people, as was mentioned, that have ACEs because, again, said probably most of us do. And I was a poor child, but I was fortunate that I was one of those poor child living in Newark that didn't know I was poor. It was like beautiful. <laughs> you know, you had unconditional love, you had aunts and uncles and food and safety, and therefore I had resiliency. And so that too can be passed on. And now the, the ways in which as adults you can have resiliency, right, as we talked about mindfulness and meditation and therapy, and that too can be passed on. So I just, I just want to make a quick clarification. Um, there's genetics and there's epigenetics. And what you described is epigenetics, and, and what that means is sort of it's an acquired genetic change. Why, why do I think that's important? Uh, genetics historically, particularly if we talk about communities of color, have been used in just profoundly negative sort of, you know, this is why you're inferior, it's biologically based, all this kind of stuff. And so um, there is this phenomenon where things that happen to you, and actually the, the, the seminal study on this was done from people in Norway who'd suffered uh, starvation during World War II and then found that not only the next generation but the generation after that had higher rates of, of diabetes. So this isn't actually just a phenomenon of poor communities in the United States. But this is the bottom line. So what we, what we don't understand as well in the, in the epigenetics literature is just as we know we can make this genetic change from these negative things, let us have a hypothesis that we can also make genetic change based on positive things. Um, because sort of from a biological standpoint, that should make sense, right? Because if you have sort of more oxytocin and these other good hormones circulating, then they potentially could do, to do a positive thing. Bottom line here, we need to be very, 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 very careful, particularly when we're working with communities, about talking this genetics thing. Because eugenics has a long, ugly, ugly history in society that, quite frankly, I still think there are threads of in, in my own profession. Um, and and it, 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 it also contributes to sort of this dooming, well, it's just it's, it's genetics, so there's really nothing we can do for you kind of thing. But I was going to, I'll just add one more thing because epigenetics and the comments Dr. Rogers makes, she made very well. There was a conference sponsored by uh, Commissioner Beyer and Department of Children and Families on Friday. And I'm guessing a lot of people here were at that conference. There was an incredible talk um, by one of the, all the speakers, but one of the speakers in particular spoke about the resiliency gene. Uh, you were there. And without going into it, because I'm certainly not an expert in that area, um, but I going to read a lot about it. I did read a little bit about this. Science is building, and there's some discussion about what this means. And, you know, the long and short of it, no pun intended, is that some people may have two, uh, the alleles, the two long arms are more resilient than the ones that have the two short and in-betweens, long and short. 
But the point of the whole talk is, even for people, or especially for people, that are considered not to carry that resiliency gene, the most important thing that can make a difference in their lives, and for people that have the resiliency gene, is a nurturing, caring environment. So I think, maybe to Dr. Rogers' point, we sometimes focus too much on how a gene causes this problem, and epigenetics is real, and it's something to definitely think about, but it's more how the environment impacts the genes, not the other way around. And this is why we do this. We need to provide those nurturing, caring environments for everyone in New Jersey, particularly for people that are experiencing more adverse conditions, are poorer, um, and so on and so forth than others. So I think we need to focus more on what we can do with the, the social environment, the social construct, constructs we can provide for everybody. Yeah, it was um, held last Friday, and it was um, a conference that's sponsored by uh, the New Jersey Task Force on Child Abuse and Neglect, so it was sponsored by them and the department, and um, it aces the road to resilience, and I think what was really important about that conference is not only that 600 people signed up uh, within two days, um, because um, so show, telling me that there's a lot of interest in this topic and people want to learn more and they want to see how they can get involved. But the fact that we don't talk about ACEs without talking about resilience. We were very um, deliberate when we put the conference together and we selected the speakers that we started out in the morning talking about toxic stress and ACEs and the impact on the body um, and how it manifests itself in children and adults and then talked about trauma-informed care and, the, and connections and how important connections are, and then ended the day with resiliency and, um, and hearing that um, the speaker uh, talked herself about having nine aces and about, you know, had she been a child today, she probably would have been removed by the division and um, is someone who, you know, speaks very eloquently and passionately about the work, but she's the one who was reminding me um, when I first came into this position 18 months ago that we shouldn't be talking about ACEs without resilience. And um, so I think that was the big takeaway from the conference. We did get a lot of positive feedback, um, but um, I think that's also our message going forward. And when we roll out our training around awareness, it's gonna have a resiliency component to it. And also talking about, um, and kind of the takeaway for the participants of how do you help develop positive childhood experiences in your own families and the children and the families you work with? Um, how do we help communities also be a part of those positive childhood experiences? Um, and that the adults in the community or in your schools can be just as important um, and influential as the adults living in your home. Okay, thank you. Um, we have a lot of really great questions um, flooding in. Uh, and two mention, well, several are about the importance of schools and what role schools can play. Um, but two in particular are also about 
early childhood centers. Um, one notes the need to uh, compensate the people who work there. I just have to, yeah, exactly. I, I have to say, I, I grew up, I'm always amazed at how child, I don't have children, so I'm ignorant to this part, but there was a woman, I live in Brooklyn, and there's a woman who lives next next door for me to, for years who um, child up, charged $100 a week to look after to her children, and you did not get a lot. I mean, you got... You know, it was perfectly safe. Um, she would feed them. She would keep them clean. They would be watching television. But you know, for a hundred dollars a week, I mean, that is the best option for some people. And it was a, I'm, nothing against Miss Green. She was doing the, you know, but I just kept thinking, Good Lord! I mean, what are the options? So again, not to get totally aside here, but childcare facilities. How can we do? How can we use them better, um, if you will? So at the Nichols Foundation, we work closely with others, other funders similarly interested in uh, supporting early childhood uh, education centers. And we all know and understand that uh, the, those educators, they're not daycare individuals, they're educators, or they should be, right? are way underpaid, many living at poverty. Um, and we need to do better. The state has um, done some work in that area under the current administration and even the previous administration to start boost up that subsidy rate. Uh, but it's still not enough. I mean, if we're uh, serious about investing in lifelong health, education, uh, and we know more about brain development than we did 20 years ago, okay. um, you know, so important those first few years of life that we need to do more in that area. Um, in the report, uh, we do um, identify five areas of opportunity right. for really doing, taking more action. And one of those areas is uh, to support through development and training. So beyond increasing the pay scale for early educators, um, is also providing them professional development opportunities and training to understand um, how to nurture children, how to interact with them in a way that will help with their brain development. Um, so those are two things I would uh, start with. Uh, and, and again, from the, I go back to the business sector, uh, why it behooves them to make sure that they are quality and safe early childhood care and education centers throughout the state is because one of the biggest reasons uh, parents, particularly mothers, leave the workforce is because they can't find a place of quality and safe and that they can afford um, for someone to take care of their children. So I, I think it's all kind of interwoven in terms of you know, what we need to do uh, for our children uh, and for our adults and parents to support them. I don't know if you want to say more. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I would say probably two months ago now, um, about five department heads, commissioners, and senior staff started meeting around this issue of childcare and um, beginning to discuss much of what Arturo said. Um, it's about safe and affordable childcare. Um, it is about you know the salaries and what we pay. Um, also about now with a movement to um, having um, early childhood education and pre-K 
in our schools? What does that mean for childcare centers? Um, and and so it's very early on in the discussions, but you know I really give this administration a lot of credit for coming together as um, you know multiple departments who all have a role or who impact uh, childcare to see you know what we can do um, and. One other thing I will say, within our department, we license childcare facilities around the state. We also license home providers. One of the biggest challenges that our families face is, um, well, there are four, transportation, healthcare, childcare, and homelessness are probably um, the top four items that our families are identifying consistently that they're struggling with. And um, and childcare. Then, if you don't have quality childcare, you don't have someone safe that you can leave your child with. It makes it very difficult to go to work, to get a job. Um, but also, it's the availability of individuals who uh, do shift work, who work more than one job, um, who you know don't have access to a childcare center because they're not open past six o'clock or they're not opened. Um, on the weekends. And so those are the other issues that I think impact our communities. Um, and it's something that we have to solve. And I do think that home-based providers, you know, can really help fill that. Um, but there is the issue of safety. And, um, and so there is the alternative, you know, of licensing. Um, but I, I think that's something that we have to address also as a state. As you talk about that, um, it, it makes me think that it sounds like just knowing some of these things, that we are more aware now of the impact of people who work off hours and things like that. Um, how do we make sure, this is another audience question, how do we make sure that we're getting input from the people that these programs um, affect directly and not sort of overlaying an organizational um, you know, color on it, if yeah. you will. Um, well, I can tell you last fall, I embarked on a listening tour um, around the state and had the opportunity to hear directly from about 450 parents um, about their interaction with the department um, all across all of our divisions and what was it that they liked, what didn't they like, what did we need to change, um, what was missing. And you know that was very helpful for me in thinking about you know our this administration and what were the goals that we were going to undertake and thinking about the development of our strategic plan. And so those parent voices, and I also um, spoke with about 50 youth who were um, transitioning out of foster care, um, and you know those voices really helped in the development of our strategic plan. Um, that I had Rutgers University um, uh, participate with me and um, and we published uh, that report and what I heard from parents. It's available on our website. Um, but I started out again last week. Um, last night I was sitting with 20 non-English speaking women who have been victims of domestic violence who receive services through a program. Um, in Monmouth County. Last week I was in Atlantic City at the Family Success Center talking with families there who participate in services. And um, the needs are so great 
And there is so much that I would never know if, it, if I didn't hear it directly from the individuals because even sitting in the room with me, the people who run the programming interpreted differently what the family said or what the parents said in terms of their own lens or their own view. Um, and that's not a bad thing, but I think it's we need to do more to hear directly from families. And we do have organizations, our family, um, our family service organizations, our FSOs, um, in the children's system of care. Um, and we created, I created last November an Office of Family Voice out of the commissioner's office to really fully integrate parent voice into um, our policies and our programs so that going forward we have a way of ensuring that we are hearing directly from the individuals that we serve. And that's very new in its development, but we are developing a parent council and a youth council that I'll get to meet with uh, on a regular basis. And then, um, you know, also looking at developing peer support programs or peer navigator type programs so that our, indiv our individuals who receive services from us have support from someone who's gone through what they're experiencing um, in a way that a social worker or case manager um, is not able to fully understand. And I think that, that support and connection for our families is so important to their own progress and healing. And so my personal belief is we need to be getting down um, into the community level, at the program level, and hearing directly from service recipients. And again, it sounds like, yes, please, it sounds like you have to do that very proactively. I mean, you can't, it, it's, it can't be an informal system of, you know, oh, give me your feedback. Yeah. Um, it has to be instituted in some formal way. Please. Uh, let me start by saying I think one of the most impressive things about you, Commissioner, is you combine both listening and doing. Because I think that's really the challenge. Um, we're great at asking communities what they need. We're terrible at doing it. You, you could have asked families two decades ago, do you have a problem with childcare? And they would have all said, yeah, <laughs> right? So These we'll are ask not them again, problems, yes. right? We'll say again, oh, and oh, by the way, who in this room believes that being homeless is good for children, right? So, so this is the hard part of all of this work and all of these conversations. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to do as a state? What are we willing to do as a society to say this is intolerable? Because underlying all of this is still a phenomenally large subset of people who believe that, that the people who live in poverty and the people who are, have these situations are there because it's their fault. They don't work hard enough, they don't try hard enough, they're not motivated hard enough. And that lets us off the hook. It lets us not have the difficult conversation that really says that while we need community input for the nuances, we don't need community input to know that we need 24-hour childcare for parents that's safe, reliable, effective, enriching, all of that good stuff, right? We don't need any focus groups to tell us that everybody needs adequate housing, adequate food, right? A safe environment. We don't need any focus groups to tell us that. What we're not willing to do is have the conversation that gets us to the place of saying, how do we find the resources to actually make that happen 
So again, I'm back to my mantra. We've got to eliminate poverty. And, and it's easy to say, and obviously it is so profoundly difficult to do, but this is the richest state in the country. This is in Connecticut, we go back and forth, right? <laughs> and so if you look at the graphs, the rich have gotten way richer, and there's a whole bunch of people, both middle class and the poor, who've gone nowhere. And these are the hard conversations that clearly we're not gonna have today, because I don't wanna get in too much trouble, but <laughs> let's get real. If we're gonna make a difference, those are the conversations and the actions we need to take moving forward. I guess, and along those points, um, one of the thoughts that I had as you were talking, but was related primarily to implicit bias, I think that there's a huge piece around this, not specifically directly related to ACEs, some indirectly, but the overall healthcare system, is that implicit biases dictate a lot of how our members, patients, clients are treated. And if we don't begin to address that and start having dialogues about that, talking about addressing things like poverty, you know, it's almost like you're you're just kind of, you know, putting plaster on something that's already broken. That's what you're really doing. So it's getting healthcare professionals aware of what those implicit biases are. And some of them are conscious too. So it's controversial, but I think that's the root at this as well. Uh, getting people comfortable with those things that they implicitly have biases for, we all do. So it's starting those conversations and having those dialogues in arenas like this. Um, and I agree with you, we can ask till we're blue in the face, well, how do you feel? What do you think is the, the best thing for us to do? And some of the approaches that we're taking is having things like community events where people are coming in for one thing and then we're giving them like snippets of different things in there. So one example is we had a community event where we provided tickets to the community in Newark, right? So to our members where they went to the movies and it was a great day at the movies. Um, they got to bring out family. There was some socialization. But how we intercepted the discussion about health was how do you eat healthy at the movies? Um, so instead of, you know, a sugary drink, maybe adding water to that, um, not adding butter. So those, we have to be creative with our approaches. And I know that seems very simplistic, but it's not just getting the community to talk about their health, you know, talking about diabetes, talk about hypertension. It's not fun anymore. Like, nobody wants to do that. So you have to make it attractive. You have to make it sexy, right? Um, but I think going back to addressing the poverty issue is that you do have to address those implicit biases as well as those conscious biases. And we have the power at the table to be able to have those dialogues. So this is such a great lead into this next question. Um, speaking of biases and heavy questions and things that we don't like to talk about, um, this is a great one. When people's childhood trauma are caused by racism and institutions uh, that are institutionally racist, I believe, is it effective to force them or to have them engage with institutions and white people as part of the solution, I believe. And the suggestion is also, how do, is it appropriate to have more support for things like African drumming, healing circles, um, poetry, things like that that might be um, culturally outside what is now considered the mainstream response? Dr. Rogers, you're named on this, so <laughs> take it away. Uh, oh, no. 
let's start by acknowledging that racism is alive and well and remains a problem in Thank this country. That's, that's like our baseline. Um, I also think that related to and embedded in that question is a broader issue, which is how do we develop interventions that resonate culturally with the various communities that we deal with, right? Because they can often be much more effective if we don't just say there's a sort of cookie cutter approach that we're, we're going to take. Um, the issue related to, and, and I think, I think at, the, at the heart of this is sort of this, this notion that kind of Kamara Jones is, is most well articulated about racism, which is sort of the personally mediated racism, which basically is, you know, oh, you're black, I don't like you. Um, and oh, by the way, I'm gonna deliver piss poor care um, to the, to the um, sort of more difficult institutionalized racism that sort of sets up institutional barriers, has a lot to do with sort of how cities are organized, related to governmental long-standing policies that are fundamentally racist and, and the like. Um, and, and then there's though the, and this is where I think a lot of the trauma of racism comes in, which is um, our own internalized racism, right? And so if I've been told for, you know, for me personally, like my life, and then for generations before then that I'm an inferior person, right? Then how does that really impact me and my health? And, and then further walking through kind of a racist world. Um, I personally um, don't subscribe to a notion that says, though, that just because racism is alive and well, and sort of at times uh, increasingly thriving in this country, um, that, that the solution is sort of to sort of further uh, segregation and kind of say, okay, I'm a black person in a racist society, I don't want to have to deal with white people. Because um, that just perpetuates it, quite, quite frankly. Um, I, I'm, I'm also actually not a big subscriber to this notion that all white people are racist, quite frankly. I mean, I, I think, that, I think that, that there are lessons that all of us learn about race ethnicity um, in this country. And I think the interesting thing that, that we're confronted with today is not only racism, but, but I, don't, I don't know. I think we use racism for the sort of anti-Latino uh, rhetoric, life experience that's going on in this country. And so we'll just label that racism as well. But, but I mean, it, it, is, it is very pervasive and, and we need actually to become more educated and aware. We need to call it out and root it out. Um, but the only way we're going to move forward is we all have to do it together. That this, this siloed approach is not going to get us where ultimately, not only where we need to be, but more importantly, where the generations that follow us need to be. Yeah. Anybody want to jump on that? We'll leave that one. All right. How do, um, this is another good question, very, very different question, but how do you evaluate success with these types of programs? I mean, I think we're definitely going to learn. Um, we're rolling these programs out. There are some metrics that we have where there are going to be survey-based metrics. Uh, historically, a lot of the metrics for our programs are around claims-based uh, metrics where they tell only a portion of the story. So we're looking for things like quality, you know, and quality can be viewed in many different ways, right? And quality sometimes isn't always measurable based on a claim. So, you know, you want to see if you've had an increase in quality scores or HEDIS metrics and things of that nature. 
This is a little bit different, working with community health workers. Yes, we expect some utilization metrics to actually improve, so we want to see decrease in cost, and we want to see improvements in overall conditions. But the other aspect is we want to see like things like social isolation. Has that been improved as a result of engagement with the community health worker or with other members of the team? Uh, we want to be able to see that is there, you know, this person who was once, you know, maybe not going to school or it wasn't goal driven, that now that they have identified some key goals that work towards, you know, things like obtaining a GED or going for a master's. So it's hard to measure all of those things, you know, based on how insurance is historically measure success. But we believe that looking at the cost will be one aspect of it, but looking at the overall health of the members over time, which is not going to give us the results right away, but we feel over time we'll be able to see if there is, is that resilience that we're seeing, not only for those specific members, but for their families. So, you know, projecting things like were we able to potentially prevent diabetes based on educating a mom who cooks in her home, um, who is basically the caregiver of that family and was cooking foods that were high in sugar or high in salt. The end result of that could be now we have a family that's now thriving. So it's gonna be tricky, but we're gonna work with a lot of different partners to be able to evaluate the efficacy of programs like this. And it's interesting, when you start thinking about families, you can sort of move the needle a little bit farther because you're impacting more and more people yes. as you take it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Ali, and then Dr. Britta. And, and I was also going to say, I think also as you look at the health of the community overall in society, mm -hmm. so we all have the measures and know them, and what I think success looks like is as all of those measures improve. So when we talk about ACEs, we're talking about um, child truancy, mm -hmm. talking about teenage pregnancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality, you're talking about juvenile incarceration, and then as adults are talking about addiction and suicide rates and diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease and hepatitis and depression, mm -hmm. all of these are related to adverse childhood mm -hmm. events. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so we look at all these trends, and unfortunately, we look at a lot of them going up. And so success, to me, is all of those trends going down mm -hmm. over time, mm -hmm. succinctly, slowly. Yeah. It's a marathon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing I just want to add is it's getting folks to believe that ACEs really has that impact. Because the research is there. I mean, for myself as a social worker, to me, this is a no-brainer, right? Like, this is what I went to school for. But for others, it goes back to, oh, well, why is it that some people, they two people, they both lived in the same neighborhood, um, you know, they both grew up poor, and this person was able to go and become a doctor, and this person wasn't. Do you really think it is the trauma that impacted that? People have those beliefs. So if you don't change the mindset around that and increase that education and awareness, it makes it very challenging to prove the point that you're making, that it's going to reduce mortality, it's going to, you know, so I'm with you, but I'm just saying there's a lot of folks that don't necessarily see see that. So the discussions about ACEs needs to continue. So collectively, as a state, and, and in fact, this is the fifth area of opportunity where we uh, emphasize in the report we need to do a better job at in taking action. And again, the details, you know, we need to work on together, is collecting data statewide about ACEs. Uh, in the video that was shown at the beginning, uh, the second report uh, that they highlighted was published last year. That 
it, information comes from uh, 23 different states that collect um, on a regular basis, um, and you know a lot more about this, maybe you'll say about this in a second, uh, data on ACEs from a BRIFIS survey, BRIFIS is a Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System survey that every state, I, I believe, does, but then there's a subset that the state will do. New Jersey had, had not been doing it until this year. Um, Department of Health runs it, but I know Commissioner Byers had input into that. So that will start to help us understand what the true impact of ACEs. I believe that 40% number, four in 10 children, I think it's an underestimated number for New Jersey. Uh, we see nodding heads here. That comes from the CDC, et cetera. It's not the self-report. So that is the beginning. So your question is how do you measure success? Well, this year uh, we'll have that information, or maybe next year, about this year. And then we need to see that start going down statewide. But I like to also start seeing it specifically identified, and this is going to depend on what communities are doing within those communities that are most impacted. That study highlighted also, the 1998 study, that in this um, self-reported survey in 23 different states, 250,000 participants, so it's a pretty extensive study, they found that there was an increased incidence of the number of ACEs, multiple ACEs, in certain communities. Not surprising, but it's nice to have the research show this. The people of color, people of extreme uh, poverty, uh, annual income less than 15,000, uh, people with less than high school education, uh, immigrant groups, and the LGBTQ community. And I think that while ACEs impacts everybody, we need to be paying, paying, paying special attention to these populations that are even more impacted and have less resources within their communities to handle, and that's what we're gonna be focusing on. But I think it's the beginning with what the Department of Health is now doing with looking at including this as a subset of BRIFAS data to start to understand what the baseline is, and then through the years, we should see that going down and down and down with, with, with the right interactions. And it sounds like that's also that data and that awareness is what's gonna be needed to sort of get more political and cultural attention to this, which was another question. Agreed. Okay. Last question um, before we wrap up. Just, I want to do a quick lightning round. Um, start over. Excuse me. I'm losing my voice too. Tra uh, tra Miss Tracy. Um, tell us one thing that gives you hope in as we approach this addressing ACEs in, in New Jersey specifically. And we'll just go down the line. I think it starts with the conversation we're having today. Um, I think for me, working as a social worker and on the payer side and to see one of the largest payers in New Jersey take a stand to address social determinants of health and to invest to me is very, very hopeful. Um, and the hope would be that others follow along and it allows for a lot of synergies where the payer is no longer seen as this really big bad guy. I know we're not, we're not, you know, we're still a little bad for some, but <laughs> it's that we have to all work and come together to address this. I think I said this earlier that this is not a problem that one institution is going to be able to fix. It's cyclical, you know, if it's a foundation, if it's, you know, the Greater Newark Healthcare Coalition, if it's Horizon, if it's the Department of Health. You mentioned that members go through the healthcare system, they go through schools. If we truly want to address this, we have to be sure that we're getting the word out and educating folks about the impact of ACEs. And to me, it's hopeful knowing that dialogues like this are happening and 
especially in the healthcare field, that physicians are beginning, specifically pediatrics, I mean, they've done a great job around starting to do this, but I think more needs to be done because it's not only around children. I think when you start talking about ACEs, people focus it primarily on children, and you have to think about the family unit as a whole. So I am hopeful that the work that I'm doing is a legacy for children to come, you know, that it's not just impacting what's happening to a member now, but it's happening to their children and their children's children, that they're now able to address what ACES is, and they're comfortable having discussions about that. Thank you. Dr. Rogers. So I guess I'm hopeful for a couple of reasons. Um, one is the discussion about ACEs opens up this discussion about having people have more access to mental health services, sort of in a blatant, open kind of way. Um, the other thing that um, I'm incredibly hopeful around is the sort of multiple sectors that are involved in sort of doing this work. And I'm particularly, and I'm not sucking up here at all, um, but I'm particularly pleased that uh, philanthropy is involved, and this is why. Because philanthropy, as opposed to every other group, um, allows opportunity for in in innovation. And so one of the things I'm really interested in um, sort of thinking about how we pilot, for example, are um, support groups for people in communities who've had trauma that aren't necessarily led by mental health professionals. So, so using sort of an AANA model with a large focus of um, really sort of teaching people about mindfulness, um, encouraging physical exercise, because we know that these interventions can work, right? Because I guess that's the third reason I'm really hopeful, is that there are interventions that we know work, right? We just have to sort of make them more available to more people. So I'm way hopeful. Thank you. Commissioner. Um, so I'm just going to repeat now uh, what the two women before me said. Um, because really, I'm hopeful that we're because we're having these conversations, because there's such interest um, from the cross-sector uh, community, um, and the opportunities that I believe exist in order to help all New Jersey families rise um, are this is where it starts, and um, I'm just excited to be able to be a part of the conversation and to be learning along with all of you um, and being in a position uh, to be able to help advance this work. Thank you. Dr. Prita. I, I think we're at the tipping point. We have a broken healthcare system, and this is why there's so much interest in this. The science is proving out. And what makes me most hopeful about New Jersey is the great leadership across sectors, how we w are working together, because we recognize that we can't do this in silos, as somebody said earlier. Um, and the fact that 600 people sign up within 24 to 48 hours for a session on ACES last week, and this gets full within a few days, I think that tells you that there's interest there. Now it's up to us collectively to figure out what to do about it and how best to use our resources. But I think the momentum is there. Terrific, thank you. Dr. Ali. Um, it's, it's interesting in, in, in retrospective, and I, I am very hopeful like everyone else on the panel. Uh, when I first started, and um, I was a, a, when I was a pediatrician, I remember meeting um, a mom, and the child came in for a diaper rash. It was a pretty bad diaper rash. And on the one hand, like many people said, you could have just treated the rash and let the mom go. But I asked why, because it was so bad. And I could see the mom was generally concerned. 
And I said, well, how did it get so bad? And she says, well, he stays in a playpen, and he was about six months old, in the back of the office where she works, and her employer won't let her go out. So he basically stays in the playpen there. And it broke my heart because my son was also six months old. And just thinking about the difference of resiliency and support versus limited. And so coming full circle now, 20, 25 years later, it is just so hopeful. Because then I was young and eager and I was gonna change the world and it was so not hopeful. And this is just full of hope and possibility. The fact that we're all here talking about changing the lives of mothers like that. Wow, can't think of a better way to end. Thank you very much to my panel. This has been terrific. Um, and thank you to our great funders, Horizon and the Funders Collaborative. And I will turn this back to John, who's reaching for the mic. I also want to thank Lilo um, for, for handling this so deftly. Uh, couldn't have done it without her. And really one of the more provocative conversations we've had in, in these events. Um, and, and I echo uh, Lilo uh, and commend her also for ending on a hopeful note. It's not a, uh, easy to uh, find hope in some of these tougher issues, and, and that was a great way to go. Um, so um, I, I want to again reiterate uh, that we will be forward you, forward you, you all. Um, I'm that's what happens when you uh, early mornings. Um, the page, and I also didn't mention before, but it's of, of great value. Uh, we put up podcasts on this event, uh, which you know everybody we have learned um, that everyone gets their news in different ways. Believe me, um, and podcasts are really effective, and that will also be on that page, as will the live stream, uh, the presentations that uh, we've been able to put up on on uh, screen. Uh, Lilo will be doing a story, and, and as we mentioned, Dr. Hamdi's reflections uh, will also be included in that. I don't usually do this, but we talked so much about how this conversation has, um, has really exploded. And, and there's a couple other events coming up that I want to mention. Dr. Rogers, you'll appreciate this. Uh, next week uh, on Thursday up at NJIT, Believe in a Healthy Newark, uh, we'll be holding a day-long event in, in which ACEs will be a big piece of it. And in the afternoon, I'll be hosting two panels that will look at ACEs in schools specifically. Um, and then uh, a little more locally, uh, on October 12th at Lawrence High School will be an Ed Camp event around trauma-informed care. Um, so again, the, I think uh, all the panelists spoke about the importance of the conversation. Um, and, and, uh, and others also spoke about the importance of executing on the conversation. But let's keep that conversation alive. So um, last but not least, please fill out those surveys. Again, they are really uh, very useful and, and helpful to us. Uh, and thank you all for coming, and enjoy your weekend. We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. 
NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.